0: We're fun. We swear.
1: (laughs) I don't have anything. I don't have anything to add. So. (laughs) You're listening to
0: the John Chee Show, hosted by three Korean American adoptees diving headfirst into what it means to be adopted, Korean American, and more. And now, here's your hosts, Nathan, Patrick, and KJ.
2: So, Patrick, you posted recently about a new book that you are reading. Uh, I don't remember the title because you put it in your story, and we didn't chat about it later. So, what are you reading? Uh, Because I was super interested in hearing about it, and I probably will add it to my cart later today.
1: Absolutely. Um, I'm going to hold it up for the camera for our listeners to not be able to see. Uh, But it is a book (laughs) called Adopted Adopted Territory. Transnational Korean Adoptees and the Politics of Belonging by Elena J. Kim. Um, Elena Kim is not herself an adoptee, but became immersed in this world um, in 1999, I believe, is when she started doing a lot of this research. And the book so far has been amazing um, insofar as that it is a really good retelling and recapping of the whole history of Korean adoption um, from... From even adoption as a, a thing in the past, like before even transnational adoptees or uh, adoptions were a thing, uh, up to 2008, I think, is when it gets to that point. I'm only on chapter four. Um, it's a lot to take in. But it, it it has been a really good read so far. I've um, learned a lot of stuff. And yeah, it's been... I hope you guys pick it up and read it at some point because... Um, it's very, very informative, and you get to see a lot of things through a different lens, I suppose, I would say, than what we've been doing here with the show, so.
2: Um, does it read like a a collegiate history book? Does it read like a memoir? Does it read like a collection of fine? Like, how does it read?
1: Right. Uh, definitely more like a collegiate, like, study almost. It's very okay. much like a, a scholarly text, I would say. Um, it's... Not so much a. It is very first person from her perspective, but I think she does a lot a really good job of bringing in multiple perspectives to to speak on it from who she talked to, and then transcribing that into the work. I think uh, she does a really good job of that. So gotcha. Yeah, um,
2: I just picked up a book uh, on Audible. Uh, it's called When My Name Was Kyoku, Kyoko by Linda Sue Park. Um, and it is, I believe it's a memoir. I haven't started it yet. It's a memoir about her time living in Korea under Japanese occupation. Um, and so I think, so for me, like, I, I don't know why, but I've just always, uh, felt a deep responsibility to understand like a native Korean quote unquote, native Korean mindset and worldview and point of view. Um, and I think, I think part of that is probably just me wrestling with being adopted and being like, well, this is who I would have been. Um, And and uh, and so I think I've just not given up on like trying to be, as a way of navigating a third culture, like trying to be as natively Korean as I can, knowing that I'll be plenty American by the time that I die, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> right. So uh, I think just having having this book, I'm really excited to hear it be, to hear the uh, the point of view of somebody who lived through Japanese occupation and maybe understand that a little bit better because in contrast, like growing up in America in the '90s and 2000s, like japanese culture uh, especially through like anime and stuff like that was like all the rage um and then uh being i don't know me me being me i really like last samurai and then you have mulan and things like that so you know i got lots of not korean but east asian culture influences uh in a very positive light and so to hear a korean perspective of like here like is the other side of these cultural influences is really exciting to me um So yeah, I'm curious to read it. Uh, Nathan, what has your uh, relationship to Korean history
0: been like? Having three kids, I don't have a whole lot of time to read like you, like you too. I, <laughs> I would love to have had more time to read some books, but lately most of my research and my uh, awareness has been done online. So I've been searching, um, you know, a lot of especially with our our current uh, guest uh, Glenn. I made sure to go through his websites and and uh, watch his documentaries on on YouTube. And some of the stories that were coming out of that were. Um, fascinating. One of the stories that uh, um, he had on from one of his interviews was a um, uh, she's half Korean, half uh, American, and she was a product of the GI, um, uh, the GIs from the Korean War being in Korea, and her mother was a prostitute, and so the Korean government, after she was born, well tried to, I guess influence and adopt these children of, of mixed race. And that was one of the things that she was saying started the adoption, um, uh, I guess, surge um, back then in the in the 50s and 60s. So it was an interesting to hear that and think, oh, wow, yeah, that does make sense that that is something that would happen like that. So um, yeah, I, I would like to dive more into that, that history of, of where the adoption did start and where these organizations started.
1: Well, Nathan, you should definitely get this book because they that's one of the things that they cover is, <clears throat> or that Elena covers there is about how it was initially mixed race because the Korean government, once they saw that they could get these kids adopted, I guess I should say, um, they were, initially it was all about mixed race because it was about very much that patriarchal Confucian-era, like, thinking, that Confucianist thinking mindset to keep the blood within, um, like, their country, to keep it pure. But then when they found out that it was it was very lucrative and, and they could do those things, you know, adoption became more, much more of a, a program as opposed to... not It became more of an economic program as opposed to a social program. Um, and then... Yeah, and it went from being about to about getting these mixed race children adopted into more, you know, how many kids can we get adopted, and what's that? What's that look like? And they eventually put in a rule where you had to, you, uh, you had to um, meet a quota for domestic adoptions in Korea uh, in order to continue to adopt internationally, um, and that came up out of '88 uh, after the Olympics because they did not get shown in a favorable light, uh, when, when that happened. But I thought it was pretty interesting going from looking at those origins of being mixed race children to get adopted. It makes sense. It's like, you know, they have fathers elsewhere. If we can get them over there, let's, let's do that to becoming, you know, how can we, how can we sustain our economy in in a certain way, uh, with, with this practice. And then, you know, then not seeing it in such a great light, and it's how how can we improve our own society and improve the way that we do things here domestically while still being able to for people that think transnational adoption is a good thing to continue to do such a thing. So, um, definitely Nathan, all, I say all that to yeah, say, get this be, book. Cause it is I will be putting that down
0: on my list. It yeah, might be I, the first book I've read in five years, 10 years.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's wild. Like Patrick, listen to you talk about that. I don't, I don't remember where I heard it, uh, or how I came across it, but I just remember hearing, um, like adoptees were Korea's greatest export for a while. Um, And like, I heard it as a joke. uh, And then like to know that adoption went from a social program to an economic program is really heartbreaking. And, uh, you know, by the time that that we release this episode will be six days into National Adoption Awareness Month. And um, I don't know about y'all, I get uh, very annoyed about any type of month. Um, And just because like, it feels like there are so many months. You know, uh, and so you're like doubling and tripling up on months to like make a thing happen. Um, But this one obviously is deeply important to me. This National Adoption Awareness Month, and uh, what I love about our conversation with Glenn about what we're trying to do, um, and really, I think what we, what I at least hope to do, I haven't really talked to you guys about it, but it's going out on air. But what, uh, what I hope that we do is we able, we're able to because we are now adult adoptees reclaim some of our narrative, uh, and really kind of blast, uh, adoption awareness month with like, Hey, here's what adoption has done for me, uh, and to me 20 years on 30 years on 40 years on, um, you know, and, uh, and be able to say like, Oh, Hey, there are just like, um, All of the race conversations that have been happening uh, in 2020 have, like, just kind of uh, opened people's minds up to the the reality that this is uh, deeply entangled and needs to be, like, straightened out as much as you can, you know, is just like opening people's eyes to like adoption isn't what you think it is or isn't what you've been told it is and that there are so many other sides and so many other stories and things. Um, so hopefully, uh, if you're following us, we'll give you things to share things to learn. Uh, and people, you know, like adoption Stories aren't monolithic stories, just like, uh, you know, all Asian American stories aren't monolithic stories. And so and they're not all um, negative and They're not all positive. It's right. Just, exactly. There are so many shades and colors. Yeah. yeah so uh, we want to be able to bring some light to that. So uh, this will be an interesting month for us, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah. And KJ, I just want to touch on something that you said. I think that using the word reclaim that reclaim our narrative, I think is really great because That is a lot of our, a lot of, so the initial adoptees that came over from Korea, you know, their stories are being written by their adoptive parents, by the social workers that helped them get here. And at the end of the day, it becomes less about the adoptees experience and more about how the people that benefited or helped facilitate this adoption um, what happened in that story through their eyes. And so I think that we are now in a group that's <clears throat> even has more opportunity because of the internet and how, how much smaller the world has been made because of that of technology where we can now start to truly reclaim that whereas in 95 or 99 when you're looking on the internet you see random blog posts or you see random stories that have been told about adoptees um, from their perspective, but it's really hard. It'd be really hard to parse through and find all of that. So we're now at a point where we can do that. And that's what we've been doing with the show. And that's what Glenn has done with side by side and given away. Um, <clears throat> and not just us though, but like a, a lot of, or all of the other, ad- uh, adoptee podcasts out there. I don't want anybody to think that it's just us and nobody else. There are a lot of good things out there, uh, where we are reclaiming that narrative and now beginning to share our stories from our own perspectives.
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting, you know, uh, one of the things that struck me, and I've there's a hundred different stories on sidebysideproject.com, that you can go and you can listen, um, and what's interesting to me is in the few that I watched preparing for the interview, uh, and, and I found this to be true of myself, when I first started talking about my adoption story, uh, I would always tell the part of the story that was really my mom's part to tell, or my dad's part to tell. And so, uh, you know, one of our our beliefs on the show is only tell things from your own experience, Um, which is, it's really hard then to say because a lot of our adoption uh, happened before our adoption. Like that was the stories that were told to us was, you know, our parents were preparing for uh, adoption for however many days, years, decades, whatever. Uh, But then like our adoption story is like, it feels very historical. And so like being able to say only what is our own perspective really makes us think about, okay, so starting from the moment, like my earliest memory and going from there, what does it mean to be adopted? What is my story of adoption? And so I hope that that this month, um, through books and through um, other things, through listening to content that, uh, fellow adoptees figure out a way to find their own voice. Uh, So that we can reclaim that narrative, you know, Uh, so it's not just saying like, well, my mom, uh, you know, wanted a kid, blah, 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 or my parents wanted, you know, all of that. But it starts with, I was adopted and, you know, and goes from there. Uh, And not not telling that. So I'm interested to see and I'm really excited to see uh, more stories, more posts, more video content, more podcasts, whatever, more chatter in Facebook groups um, about uh, what adoption is for you. Uh, not what it means, not what it represents, but what it is for you uh, and finding our voice and then just getting loud about it.
0: And one of the things I really appreciate that uh, um, with those stories on Glen site uh, is that they're all discovering something about their their own stories. And when I discovered my own story as well, that was something that i had a pre-notion that i kind of knew or i thought what the story was of why i was given up for adoption and things like that but i didn't really know until i i tried to discover some of that i went out and and researched it and i I searched for my biological family and you know i figured it was based on money as we've been discussing the korea was fairly poor at that time and they were in poverty so i figured it was money and when i actually found out it was about money but it was about money because I had six other siblings (laughs) and the oldest one was getting ready to have a baby as well. And it was just, that made more sense to me and I wouldn't have ever expected those details to come out of it unless I had searched and found that out. So my awareness of that was, was that, that discovery is, is that search. So um, yeah, it's interesting to hear all the other uh, people on Glenn's site say similar things that they thought they had these pre notions of what, why they were adopted or what their parents were like or things like that. And then they discover something either s- different or kind of similar to that narrative, but it's, uh, that discovery I think is what it's all about. So everyone goes through their own.
2: Remember how we were going to do this so that like we didn't trend super heavy and dark. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so it is. <laughs> I'm going to blame that Glenn that. Glenn? That was a great
1: conversation. That was a great conversation.
2: Darn it man, you did you did too good on your work and now we're all like in our heads about it. So, without any further delay, here is our interview with Glenn Mori. Once again, you can catch his new Audible original tomorrow. It is called Given Away and it is a collection of uh the stories that he filmed from his side-by-side project, which you can go and watch at any time at your leisure. All 100 of them are posted at sidebysideproject.com. Uh here is our interview. Here
0: we go. All right. Welcome back to uh, The John Chi Show. This is episode 12. We are here with Glenn Morey. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, glad to be here. Uh, like, uh, like all of our episodes, we usually just start with a little bit of uh, backstory about yourself and just tell everyone on our viewers uh, and listeners uh, about yourself and, uh, and your adoption.
3: Well, I, you know, I may be the oldest guest you've had so far. <laughs> Whoa, um, we're not ageist on the show. Bro. So oh yeah, you well, take it easy with that age. That's talk. part of our canon. We're definitely not ageist. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I literally could be all of your fathers. So, uh, right. I was, a, I was born and adopted in 1960, and uh, uh, that's easy math. That makes me 60 years old. <laughs> So, so I was actually abandoned in Seoul at the age of two weeks and uh, middle of the winter, I guess, oh. and, and not a shred of identification hmm. and ended up in City Hall where apparently Holt came through City Hall uh, you know, periodically and, and took those infants and children who were likely to survive. Uh, and took them back to their orphanage at Nokbun Dong, which was in Seoul. And uh, I was there for a few months and then was adopted in July of that year. Uh, I was on a plane with 80 other kids uh, to Portland and landed in July and taken to Littleton, Colorado, Uh, which is about as far away from Seoul, Korea, as you could possibly (laughs) be. Uh, And grew up uh, as the younger brother of three older sisters, and then the older brother of three more adopted kids. My parents kind of got into it. After me, they adopted a kid every three years. Oh, wow. uh, For three more kids, (laughs) one from Korea and two domestically. And I... uh, yeah, so we, I, I grew up in Littleton, Colorado. I was, me and my brother, uh, also through Holt, were the only Asians, as far as I could tell, in Littleton. So, uh, yeah, that's the story.
0: That's, that's amazing. So with the uh, seven, I'm also in my old my biological family, I'm the seventh child as well. It seems that uh, that seems to be a trend. Big families with a lot of uh, adopted Um, either adopted families or biological families, both. We're hearing a lot of that.
3: Well, the size of our family is only exceeded by its dysfunctionality. So uh, (laughs) I got to tell you, maybe bigger is better, but not in our family. It definitely was not. Um, You know, I, I, to this day, have no idea why, why our parents adopted me and us. I I have no idea. They never told us. Uh, My father rarely spoke to me and never talked to me about anything of import. Um, My mother was was very nice and a great mom, but but was a pretty damaged human being. Uh, When she was a little girl, her her mother died, and her father gave her up to foster, and she bounced around relatives' houses and. Stuff like that, and just had a really tough time, and 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 really carried the scars of that for her entire life, and 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 as a result, I just I just don't really know that there was, well, I do know there was no there was no family cohesiveness or or a dynamic of of communication even,
1: mm-hmm.
3: uh, let alone you know real close bonds between siblings and or between us and our parents. They're just it just didn't exist, and so. And so, with all of these family members that I have, you know, immediate family, um, I never see any of them. Hmm.
0: Do are they close with each other at all as well, or no? It's just no. Everybody went their separate ways essentially.
3: Yeah my my father died when I was eighteen. Uh, he died of cancer after a long illness, and as soon as that happened, um, uh, the family just started. Breaking apart. Um and so maybe my dad in his in his silence uh provided more of a more of a core than I even ever knew. Uh, because as soon as he was gone, it just was all over. And uh and so no, I I actually don't have much of a relationship and I rarely see any of my siblings. And what tough. about
0: the one that's adopted, the you I have three that closer? are adopted. I, I am a younger Korean brother. Adopted,
3: yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, um, so I didn't, I, I was not a well-adjusted adopted kid, even though I was adopted as a baby. And, and I had a lot of issues with, with who I was. And as a result, you know, the fact that my brother was almost the same thing as what I was, I didn't. Much like him, mm. and I didn't have much to do with him. Uh, he was three years younger than I was, so that made it easy. but um uh, you know i'm I'm embarrassed by this and I'm ashamed of this because I know that all the reasons I don't have a relationship with my brother really had to do with me. They didn't have anything to do with him, and they had to do with me and the fact that I didn't much like myself.
0: Yeah I think all family dynamics are different not not even if you're adopted or biological I've I've heard a lot of different stories from friends who are biological and they don't speak with their brothers they don't speak with their you know parents anymore um so uh, every every family has definitely different dynamics that's you know sorry to to hear that with yours but uh, I am w- wondering with uh, all of the stories that you've heard um you know with with your documentary that you've been doing too are there um you know, things that you've heard from those that are similar, that, that, you know,
3: that you can relate to, or that they can relate to you? Well, you know, everybody's story is different, of Mm. course. Sure. Um, But when you, when you talk to a hundred people, there, some things begin to be similar. And, and there were certainly a number of stories, well, actually many stories where people were adopted, uh. Alongside another adopted person from Korea, or adopted with a biological sibling, um, and and my take on on the differences between those is it seemed like those who were adopted with a biological sibling were very very close, and and in, because one was older than the other, um, they were almost. The guardian for their younger sibling. Um, they 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 had the more difficult time transitioning, um, but they took upon themselves the responsibility of of making sure that their sibling was okay. And I mean, even to the point where they would taste all of their food. Hmm. Uh, they would help them with the language issues, you know. So, uh, yeah, it was they were very close relationships. On the other hand many of the relationships that were described to us in these stories that were not biological, um, many of those siblings were not close at all uh, for reasons ranging from they were very dissimilar people to the family dynamics just didn't contribute to that.
0: Mm. Yeah.
3: So taking all that in and, and
1: thinking about your are uh, hearing about your experience growing up and then like your relationship with your adopted brother um and then growing up in Littleton, what was your first <clears throat> foray into either Korean culture or even the adoptee community? When did you first when when did you first start to um kind of investigate that side of yourself or what prompted that uh to happen?
3: Well, I was pretty young. I was forty-two <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, that's pretty young.
3: <laughs> oh yeah, sorry guys. Um <laughs> age is just a number, remember? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know as I said I I grew up very very uncomfortable and unhappy with being Korean especially mm-hmm. uh, being adopted secondarily. Um for a lot of reasons um that are that are similar to to in to many of the stories that we filmed for Side by Side, um, but uh, as a result of that, I was desperate to construct an identity for myself—you uh, know, a personhood—that was based on anything but those things. And so, the most obvious choice of what you're going to make yourself out of was was work. It was career. And so for a long time, I, I identified solely, and I thought of myself solely as, as a professional person, um, and I wouldn't ever allow my ethnicity or, or my origin to enter into the telling of my story, um, or how I described myself, for that matter. Um, I mean, to the point where, where I would be meeting a stranger at a coffee shop for a meeting, and and I wouldn't tell them that I was Korean, making it much, much more difficult to identify. <laughs> so, you know, when I was when I was in my early 40s, I, I actually was involved in a film project that was about uh, race in America uh, and race specifically in the television industry. And uh, which is ridiculous for me to be making this film because I was not racially conscious um, or fluent. Mm-hmm. So, so here I am making this project, and and these people are telling their stories about experiences of people of color in the television and entertainment industry, and I'm just like the audience I'm hanging on every word because I can't believe people are talking about this stuff. I just can't believe it. And I can't believe that I could identify with so much of it. Mm. And none of these people were adopted. It was just a matter of being Asian or being of color in America and being a working person and what that meant. And uh, I remember a, a woman who, who described her experience moving with her parents to from the Philippines uh, to Indiana when she was just a kid, and she described, you know, going to school and people spitting on her as she walked down the sidewalk, and just the abuse that she took. And and uh, you know, I'm I'm sorry to say I identified with that because you know when 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 I was growing up in the '60s in Littleton, Colorado, attitudes toward Asian Americans. Uh, you know, weren't great. Yeah. I mean, our, all of our parents had served in either world war II, uh, Korea, or even Vietnam perhaps. Mm-hmm. And as a result, we're very much a product of that wartime propaganda mm-hmm. and the negativity, negative portrayals of Asians on purpose by America and by our institutions. And so, their kids also became a product of that. And, and I got tormented on a daily basis. Uh, so anyway, um, it was amazing for me to hear some of these other people talking about this. And and it really woke me up to the fact that, that if I was ever going to be a real person, an authentic person, someone who was actually inside the physical body that I inhabit, <laughs> um, that I was going to have to come to terms with all of this. And, and, uh, when I started talking to my wife about this, uh, she was very relieved, first of all, because, (laughs) because I never would talk about any of this. Um, and secondly, she directed me, uh, to, to a number of opportunities to begin expanding this interest, including going to, a uh, a, uh, conference uh in in minneapolis for adoptees uh with the organization con k-a-a-n and uh and that was my first uh adoptee event what year was that 19 or no excuse me 2002
0: okay that's great so, none of us have been to a
3: conference we've all discussed wanting oh, to though
1: we want yeah. to go yeah we can we <laughs> so. could go virtually i guess no <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I know they're but not I not right now. You know, <laughs> I, I I'm so glad to hear that you want to go because because I got to tell you, I mean, for me going to this thing was transformational. It it it, I am I and that sounds kind of overly dramatic and and over the top, but I don't know any, any other way of saying it. It changed my life. Mm-hmm. Um and and I'm not a spiritual or religious person particularly. Um, and so I'm not speaking in those terms. What I'm saying is that I came out of there a different person who was behaving and acting differently in, in really important aspects of my life. And, 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 you know, all the way from the first moment, when I walked in, I walked into the, the Doubletree Minneapolis, uh, which is really nice by the way. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh and I walked up to this, this registration table where there were three young women behind the table and and it was amazing because i was immediately greeted and accepted and welcomed exactly for being the things that i had so despised about myself for Mm -hmm. so long Mm -hmm. and and it it just was, I'll, I'll never forget the feeling of that. And in fact, uh, two of the young ladies behind that table are friends of mine to this day. Um, uh, in fact, I, I hung out with them and at conferences in 2019, which is the last time we had conferences. So, um, it was, it was really an amazing experience. Um, and it's where I woke up to the, um, the power, the, uh, the potential of, of stories, our stories Mm -hmm. to not only help people like us, but just to help ourselves. Mm -hmm.
1: I I really love that you, the way you described that feeling that you got when you walked into the conference. So I've been reading the book adopted territory by Elena Kim, and I'm on this part of, she's talking about adoptee kinship (laughs) and how that is something that's, developed within our community and it's almost an unspoken thing but when we either get together or when we first breach and breach the community and find those other people it's like part of that part of that hole that's in your soul or that's missing fills up and you can't really describe it uh but the way that you described it even even in those certain words it, it, i mean it really it really connected for me just by reading having read that book uh just very recently um and, and it's really interesting and it Honestly makes me want to go to a conference even more. I'm like, let's go yeah. open the doors, but wear masks. And also only twenty <laughs> people can go. Yeah. So <laughs> so we'll slowly build up to it. Twenty um, people in twenty different rooms. One percent
0: uh, with that. Exactly. Korean adopters, of course. <laughs> twenty rooms outside. Yeah. Um, no, that, I've always okay. wanted to go too. Like yeah. like you said, that that uh I mean, Dan, you know, Matthews talked about it as well. And I think we've heard it from a lot of people is that they are, you know, um, very eye-opening and beneficial for, for a lot of people. And they might not be beneficial for everyone that goes, but I think majority of the people that go, it, it's, uh, um, they get something out of that. And that's why, um, you know, that's why I've wanted to go
3: for sure. But Let, let, let me say two things though, to that. <laughs> one is, one is that if you did the math, if you took all the conferences that have ever been held for the last 25 years for, for adoptees and you eliminated, you know, the duplication of all of those people that go to multiple conferences, you would still end up with a number that was less than probably 15% yeah. of the total adoptee population. So it's not like everybody goes to these things and it's you know, not like, like everybody even has the opportunity to go to these things. It costs money to travel. It takes time Mm -hmm. to travel. People have families, people have lives. And so that's why that was one of the very first reasons that we did side by side so that people could have the opportunity to experience the stories of other Korean adoptees, even if they would never make it to a conference. Mm. Yeah.
0: So yeah, let's, let's talk about that because you're, um, um, Their side by side documentary, um, which is, you know, out of a Korean orphanage and into the the world. Uh, it's been released on your website. And something I wanted to ask is a question on your website, it is 100 people um, with each of their stories, and you can click on their stories and uh, view them. Is there a longer documentary of all of them? Because I know there's a shorter documentary, which was the New York Times one on YouTube. <laughs> Um, which I don't know, that was probably a separate edit that you did maybe specifically for them. But um, is there a longer cut version of the full thing? I know it said something about it being premiered uh, at a lot of locations and things around uh, the country. Um, So can you talk a little bit about those differences?
3: Sure, sure. First of all, the interviews that are on Mm sidebysideproject.com, those are complete and virtually unedited. I mean, the only stuff we took out was like, do overs or mistakes or what have you, uh, or um, just technical issues. So otherwise, they are complete, and and I think that's really important because because honestly, it's not just what people say; it's the context in which they say it, and it's their body language w- with which they say it. It's it's the whole thing, and and to be able I, I wanted people to be able to experience those interviews as I did in the room, mm-hmm. because that was remarkable. That was a life-changing experience for me. And, and I wanted people to be able to experience them that way. And so I, I to this day, believe that, that to get the very, very most out of the experience of side-by-side, those full interviews are a wonderful way to do that. And a lot of people do that. Uh, the, the website rolled out, uh, mid 2018 and, and people continue to go to that website and consume a lot of videos. So, uh, but obviously not everybody has the time or inclination to consume 21 hours of video. (laughs) I was going to ask you how long that was. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I Uh, got nothing but time these days. (laughs) Well, have at it. Uh, (laughs) uh, Just don't forget to eat and stuff like that. But, um, but uh, the, so we went to the other end of the spectrum as uh, you know, from there we, we said, let's make a short, let's make a 38 minute film. That's what we made. We made, we made something that people could watch in under an hour. And uh, we didn't really intend to do that from the beginning uh, to be honest, because, because I didn't want to take the responsibility of selecting stories and excerpts to include in the film. You know, you, you, you totally affect the takeaways and the, and the messages of the film Mm -hmm. by your editorial selections. And, and I was really afraid that, that I would, um, exhibit some of my own uh, inclinations or bias or whatever you know by doing that and 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 moreover i was very concerned that 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 other people would think that that had happened so so the thing that i want to say about the short film is that the the excerpts the stories that we selected the excerpts that we selected are we we picked them because they were the most representative of the 100 stories mm. we could have picked excerpts and stories that were different and unusual and and striking and you know all of those things but we really didn't want to do that we wanted to as well as we possibly could we wanted to represent the 100 stories and even then we're not representing the adopted universe mm-hmm. you know but at least we wanted to represent the 100 stories in a fair fashion. So from there, we, we cut the project down even further. We worked with the New York Times to create an even shorter version of the documentary called Given Away. It's 16 minutes long, and uh, it's been seen a ton of times. I, I, I don't know the exact number because New York Times won't tell you. Uh, but, it's uh, about 380,000 on YouTube right now. Yeah, uh, well, it was prop. my I mean, guess is I'm it sure was... more. You know, ten times that on yeah. the homepage of the New York Times, where it resided for a week. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and then from there, we kind of went back in the other direction. We created a, a video art installation that was comprised of excerpts from all 100 stories, um, and and there were 12 screens in this in this exhibition, and each screen had a different theme on it, a different part different aspect of our story like uh memories of korea for those people who were adopted in an older age um uh adoption stories themselves you know the transition from from korea to to the adoptive country um growing up you know people grew up in in the most amazing and and disparate uh variations of of adoptive homes that I, i i I was always uh, in, I never ceased to be surprised by the variations that came out of adoptive upbringings, mm-hmm. um, you know, to the desire to search and the desire to visit Korea and, and the, the process of having your own children and, and all of those things came into play in these on these different screens. Uh, and all in all that ex- that exhibit, uh, housed some five hours of content. Um, and it, it it exhibited in Seoul and New York City, uh, last fall. Uh, and, um, it just was an amazing experience to be able to exhibit like that. Um, and then of course, now we're in the process of, uh, getting ready to launch our latest adaptation, which is, we're releasing side-by-side side as an Audible.
0: Wow. Um,
3: so an Audible original. Uh, nice. It's going to be about five hours long, and uh, which is shorter than most uh, Audible books. But okay. still, it's a lot of content. Um, but it's also the first time that we've created something that features... In addition to the stories, it features um, commentary by me. Oh, cool. nice. And okay. so I talk about the project. I talk about what we learned. I talk about how the stories that, that the listener is hearing, how it relates to the overall and the lifelong journey of a Korean adoptee um, or any intercountry adoptee to some degree uh, or even any adoptee to some mm-hmm. degree. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, I'm very, very excited about that coming out. We're going to be, you know, presenting to a completely new audience. Uh, meanwhile, we continue to do online screenings for all kinds of great organizations, including one, uh, coming up this weekend, starting this weekend, extending to the following weekend for adoptee hub, yeah. uh, in Minneapolis. So, uh, that's going to be exciting too I hope your listeners join us for that well yeah. I first want to say
1: congratulations on all of these just not only on accomplishing this project but now getting to release it in so many different forms I think releasing it one time and putting it on the website is one thing but now to get to do it in so many different ways and share it in so many different ways is amazing um i I want to I, I want to say also that, what really drew me to this project and when I found it online, in the first place was the way that you framed the interviews and how you put it from your perspective. Like we were standing behind the camera with you and we're watching these people relate their stories. Um, I thought that was extremely powerful. And I like now on the Audible where you're talking about the process a little bit too and adding these notes in. Um, and that was one of the things that I had wondered and wanted to ask you was, a hundred interviews all over the world is a huge undertaking. That's a massive project. Um, I wondered what was maybe two things. What was the most difficult part of like putting that together and then going through with it? And then what was maybe the most fulfilling part or the thing that you found that was easier to do or or that gave you the greatest uh whatever a synonym for good is feeling. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Um, difficulty, uh, that's a, that's an odd word, I think. Um, I mean, I, I really wanted to do this project, so nothing seemed difficult in the sense that I didn't want to do that part. Um, uh, but what it was, was, it was a long journey, uh, emotionally, uh, for me personally. Um, I was not the same person at the end of filming this or even at the end of post production on this as I was at the beginning. Um, I thought I thought that I had really kind of unwrapped a lot of my issues and 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 thinking and, and processes about adoption and and race. But I I hadn't even started, I think in retrospect. Um, I went through so many, I had so many epiphanies and so many emotional moments and, and so many breakdowns over the course of making this project, I can't even really count them, they, they happened all the time. And uh, uh, it was a very, very difficult process to go through. Um, But in that difficulty, I knew we were doing something really important. And, and I think that, and I appreciate, you know, you saying what you said, Patrick, about, you know, us getting this project into so many forms, but honestly, you know, no one's ever done this. So no one's ever, you know, filmed a hundred stories of a hundred people, seven countries, 16 cities, six languages, you know, and really told this broadly representative story. Not only a broadly representative story, but deeply personal in every case. You know, mm-hmm. no one's ever done this before, and these and these stories are so incredibly valuable that that I would have I would have felt really bad had we not been able to to completely uh, optimize and and distribute these stories as as far as we could get them, and and I continue to feel that way. I don't think we're done after. After this project, uh, after the Audible thing, I we're going to continue to try to put these things out into the world because they're so immeasurably valuable uh, to adoptees, to adoptive families, to future adoptive parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're so valuable. They're so valuable to society at large. So that so that maybe we can begin to see a different kind of narrative you know, social narrative emerging about adoption and about intercountry adoption and so forth. So, so we, we just had an, a huge responsibility to get these stories as far and wide as we could.
0: And to touch on what, what Patrick said too, on the way you filmed this for the viewers and listeners who haven't seen that, that um, you, you filmed it with a thing called an iDirect, which uh, mm-hmm. attached to the camera, Um, So that they saw you and you saw them while they were recording. Um, In addition, you filmed it portrait style, which I felt was, or did you crop it afterwards? Because that, I mean, the way you did that made it just very personal. Like you were there standing in front of the person talking to them while I was watching it um, and the viewers. So that decision to do that, that you, you made before, Going through all of those, I think is is brilliant and really involves the viewers um, while they're watching those.
3: Well, I really appreciate that, um, uh, and and I wish I'd thought of that when Patrick asked me the most difficult part because <laughs> because uh, the most difficult aspect of making this project was was the was the uh, vertical format. Okay. Um, it presented a billion problems mm-hmm. all the way from. A tripod that wouldn't go <laughs> vertical most tripods won't go vertical for video mm-hmm. and uh, most camera heads won't go vertical and uh, um, and then captioning all the way to captioning there are mm-hmm. no automated programs replacing uh, captions uh, so we did we did all 25,000 or so captions we didn't wow. no, manually, manually. Like On the side. wow, wow. <laughs> So we paid a price for that decision, yeah. uh, but there was no really no going back once we started that way. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the eye direct, uh, you know, most people don't don't consciously notice that, but it, having direct eye contact with the camera is really the only way to replicate what I experienced in the studio.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, because if I'm the only one that ever gets to look. In the storyteller's eyes, that's really sad. I think, mm-hmm. I think everybody should have the opportunity to look in these people's eyes while they're telling their stories, and that's that's what the Eye Direct allows. Um, at the same time, it doesn't like freak out the the storyteller t- to look into a camera because they don't see a camera; they see me.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, that's the way it works technologically. So. Um, it was we, we had some really wonderful technological assistance you know in getting to where we wanted to be the the other the other thing about the shooting format was that we we lit and framed every every interview identically mm-hmm. um, We wanted to do that because and we and and the reason and the reason we shot it in vertical was so that we would minimize. The environment so and we shot on white to to well, mm-hmm. uh, eliminate the environment and uh but the the point of all of that was not artistic necessarily i mean i kind of like the clean look of that but but the real point of it was to democratize the stories i didn't want anybody to look at one of these storytellers and make a judgment based on anything but their story mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want them to look at like where they were, or you know, the room that they were standing in, or or the location, or uh, th- that's too easy. I wanted mm-hmm. I wanted there to be no difference in playing field, you know, for anybody. I wanted it to be absolutely level, so so you can't tell the the difference between um, uh, any of these people socioeconomically. Uh, you can't tell the difference between them. Uh, in terms of what they've achieved in life. Uh, you can't tell the difference between them in terms of what challenges they're facing. Um, all you know is their stories and what they've been willing to reveal, which was a lot. Mm-hmm. So
1: to that point, how what was the process like to find the storytellers, to find the hundred people to, to bring in? I, I, I'm assuming you didn't just know them all uh, from going to conferences and you're like, I'm going to film you and you and you. Uh, what was that process like?
3: Well, um, what we did is, is well, let me let me take a step back. The first thing we did is that we interviewed, I don't know if, if you all realize it or if you've made your way through the, the website like this, but the 100 people include 11 aged-out Koreans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or actually 12, 12 aged-out Koreans, mm-hmm. uh, 11 of which we filmed in Korea. I was... I was very determined that that be part of this project because we were with them side by side in these orphanages and whatever you want to call it, divine intervention or random luck. uh, We ended up somewhere different and they ended up somewhere different. And, and, and that's part of our story too, you know? And, uh, and so I think that the fact that we were in orphanages with other people, I think I think is, is important. And so we knew, though, that that was going to be hard. It was going to be hard to find and identify 12 people who were willing to tell their stories as aged out people, Koreans who had aged out of orphanages. Um, there's so much bias and yeah. discrimination against, against them in Korea. And, and, and a lot of these people go through life keeping this a secret. They don't tell anybody. One guy didn't tell his wife for 10 years Hmm. while they were married. So, um, and is that 18 years old when they get aged out? They age out at 18. 18. Some of the older people that we interviewed, um, aged out when they were like 14 or 15. Uh, and they aged out with nothing. They, Mm -hmm. they, they aged out. They ate their next meal on the street, normally stolen or fought for. And, Hmm. and it was you know, that way from that point. But anyway, we we went to Korea. We found these uh, uh, 11 people and then 12 people who would be interviewed. Um, and and that's where it really started. Um, but then we we realized that once we had those in the can, that we could really make this project happen. So I put out announcements on social media, mm. telling people what we were trying to do. And adoptees, you know, all over the world got in touch with me. I then had a phone conversation with most of them. Uh, of course, you know, we couldn't go everywhere. So we looked at the cities where we had the most responses and that's where we went. Within those cities, though, and I think I think this is important to understand, um, you know, we filmed everyone who wanted to tell their story. We didn't say no to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we didn't want to make those decisions that would impact. Right the content of the project. And so so we filmed everybody. Uh and furthermore, we didn't edit anyone out. We filmed a hundred stories and there are a hundred stories on sidebysideproject.com. So um yeah, that's the way it worked.
2: So I'm curious um if we can uh just Kind of take a pause just from the the logistics of the project, which I could probably sit and talk to you about for hours. <laughs> I'm a nerd and love about love hearing about how that stuff works, but I'm curious. Um, Glenn, you said uh, a number of times now, um, your first conference and then in the side- by side project, uh, that there has been uh, a number of kind of foundation shaking realizations for you. Um, and I'm curious hearing, going through side by side and hearing a hundred stories, uh where I guess generally the question I guess is where did you start and where are you now? But um I think really it's just how do you think about yourself as a, a Korean American and as an adoptee um now versus when you were running away from those things?
3: Well uh... There, there's really no comparison. Um, I didn't think of myself as, as I mean, I knew I was Korean, obviously, but, but I would never have identified myself as Korean American. I never would have even identified myself as a minority. I think, mm-hmm. or, or as a person of color, um, and I, I would never have willingly identified myself as an adoptee. Uh, so, so at this point. Um, You know, one of the things that doing this project required of me was to be very, very open about all of that. Uh, And even even when I entered into the very beginning of this project, I knew that if this went where I thought it was going to go, I would have to make a commitment to myself that I would be completely open and completely authentic. About these aspects of my of my existence, and and that I would answer any question, and that I would and that I would not do so defensively the way I had done that my entire life. Um, so that's the difference. Mm. I mean, can you be that? Can you occupy that really um, without defensiveness, with complete openness? I mean, yeah, we all get tired of well, where are you from, or whatever you know, some perfect stranger asking you if you've ever met your biological parents. You know, it's bizarre when that happens. But but honestly, I'm even different about those things at this point. I've I've I'm at the point today where I want to be so open about those things. I don't want to be defensive about them at all. And I'm I'm willing to talk to anybody who wants to know for whatever reason. I mean you know, up to a point, you know, but, right. but uh, I mean, s- there are some people who simply want to disagree with me right. about things, which is fine. Um, but I don't typically talk to them for very long. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: and your um, wife
2: and
0: then, co-directed oh, sorry, this. You ahead. could, like I was gonna say, your wife co-directed it. She, you could do a uh, uh, a biography about yourself now. <laughs> I'm sorry,
3: I don't quite understand what you mean by that. Oh, she could now interview you for a full, a full. Oh, documentary well, she did. She did. Oh, okay. I'm one. I'm one of the 100. Yeah. Oh, I see. I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah, and she sat behind the camera.
0: Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I'll have now, to definitely go watch that do, one.
3: But you do know that. these weren't really interviews. I mean, mm-hmm. the way it worked was that. Well, the way interviews normally work is that you ask questions and people answer them and 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 it's like sixty minutes, you know and and the but the problem with that method, it's great for the news, I guess, but it doesn't work for this because because you don't know that the questions themselves are not leading the interviewee in a direction that that is true, that is authentic. Um, and so what I did instead, was I decided not to ask any questions. And I simply prepared them with the idea that they would come into the studio for 60 minutes, they would, they would have the chance to tell us their story. I basically wanted them to do it in, in, in chronological order if they could, or, or, and if they didn't want to do that, that was fine too. Uh, some people deviated from that. Um, but most people went through it in chronological order, um, You know, including their time in Korea, their adoption, their upbringing, um, their coming into adulthood all the way up till the present. And, and essentially the only questioning that I did, I guess the only role I played was to remind them kind of where they were and to uh, and, uh, restart them at, at a different mm-hmm. milestone, you know, at the next milestone. So, so uh, as a result of that, people only talked about what they wanted to talk about. They only described what they thought was important, um, and the unanticipated result of that was they ended up talking about a lot of things that that I never would have asked about, and that they never would have even thought that they would talk about. Hmm. So uh, it was it was a surprising experience for for both sides of the camera. Um, yeah, it was. Hmm. It was uh, an amazing experience. That again, that's why I like it when people watch the full interviews. So I did.
1: Uh, I I happened to watch yours today, and I when I was going through and I was I was watching some more and getting more caught up, and I was wondering, what, did you always plan to be one of those hundred interviews, or did that come up in during the process of filming with everyone else that you're like, okay, I I think I'm I'm gonna do this as well.
3: Um. I guess I had planned to be one of the interviews, but I spent most of the production period in denial of that, uh, <laughs> and and I was number one hundred. Uh, <laughs> it was it was a very scary experience for me, um, not because you know I being in front of the camera is fine, but um, scary is the wrong word. Uh, I had a lot to live up to. Mm-hmm. 99 people had come into our studio or a studio and had told us the truth. Mm-hmm. They were completely vulnerable, completely honest, completely truthful, completely revealing about their experiences and their memories and, and their perspectives. And I had a lot to live up to. I don't know that I did. I, I in fact, In fact, honestly... Throughout the course of post-production, uh, I become more convinced that I'm still learning things and still understanding things and still coming to terms with things that I could have talked about then. But as I tell everybody in the project, that interview was a snapshot in time. you know. And no matter how much you change, no matter how much you learn, no matter how much your circumstances are become different, Um, that snapshot in time will always be valuable to somebody. Yeah, I can,
0: because of that being a snapshot, I can see you even going back and asking what's changed since that (laughs) snapshot since, um, because as you said, you changed from the conference, you changed from the beginning of the the documentary to the end of it. I, I wonder how many lives you changed by having them come into the studio and ask that question uh, for them to tell their stories. I wonder if they, and I'm sure they did, got some self-reflection out of that and and went out and learned more. I mean, I think all of us here on, on our show, uh, Patrick and KJ and I, have all developed even over the two months of doing this. Um, so that's, have you considered going back and asking
3: any of the uh, uh, the participants again? Uh, well, first of all, I'm in contact with any number of them, uh, and I know that their lives have changed. Um, I don't really think we're prepared to take on part two of this project. <laughs> uh, part one, I think we have not fulfilled the potential of part one mm-hmm, yet. Right. So, so, and, and I'm content with the idea that we have these snapshots in time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I want to go back to something you just said, which was... You know what? What it what it was? What it ended up? What it ended up being for those who told their story. Um, I said I didn't ask any questions. That actually isn't true. I asked one question at the end of most of the interviews. I asked, "What of any of what you've told me have you told to other people before this?" And the almost uniform answer was very little. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Number one, we, we as human beings, we don't often get the chance to tell our stories in this really complete single session way, right? So and and nobody seems to be that interested, you know, for most of us. So <laughs> so I get that, but there's another reason why that's true. And it's a it it's a more important and 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 I think frankly, darker reason. And the reason is because most of the stories people told us ran very counter to the traditional social narrative about inter-country adoption. If the traditional social narrative is about rescue and compassion and and the love of, of a forever home and 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 this fairy tale ending which in some cases is true, but obviously in other cases is not. Um, well, these stories very much run counter to that, and it's not. It and they're not an indictment of adoption. They're not an indictment of intercountry adoption at all. All these people are saying is, "This was my experience with with it. This was my life experience. It wasn't simple. It wasn't easy. It was." It was something that I struggle with today, and there are areas of pain associated with my with my life and with my origin and with my my coming to terms with my identity that that are real. And and the problem is is because the social narrative is so prevalent. None of us want to tell that story at a party, right? Right. <laughs> so. So when people say that's not a good party opener, well, when so when people when people ask you or find out at a party that you were adopted and they're they're asking you questions about that, as people do, you're not going to tell them the real story, right? (laughs) You're going to tell them the the story that fits in the in in the acceptable narrative, Mm -hmm. and and so yeah, that's the darker reason why nobody tells the has told these stories or all of these stories you know, prior to that time in our, in the studio. Um, and I think that's why these sessions were important to people because to be able to articulate all of that finally, and for once, um, I'm glad we were able to give them a chance to do that. I'm glad I had a chance to do that, even though I didn't do as good a job as a lot of people (laughs) did.
2: I love that um, that that you're moving side by side to a new medium. Uh, I am a big uh, audio content uh, ingester. I don't know how to say that in a not. I like it uh, in a more normal way, I guess. But I I I take in audio content like a maniac. Um, So I'm I'm really excited to to hear side by side on Audible. Um, I'm excited to hear uh, your commentary on it, and I'm curious as you've gone back to this project a number of times now, first, you know, in the initial post-production and then thinking about it, uh, for the the documentary and, and the thing for the New York times. And then again, as, uh, as a video kind of art exhibit, uh, has anything, I guess what's been the timeline for that and, and, uh, ha- has your thoughts on the project changed or just been reinforced going back to that? Well,
3: no, they've, they've changed. Um, you know, i'm a I'm a writer by trade, and uh, I was a writer in advertising if if you call that writing. I don't know. Um, uh, so I've been writing about this project since the very beginning of it in two thousand and thirteen um, and putting it out there, you know, in the form of all kinds of things, ranging from you know, trying to find people who wanted to become part of the project, you know, to updating those people and you know, to public. Public articles and stuff. So those articles, my writing about this project has changed dramatically since the beginning, and even it's even changed over the last couple of years quite a bit. And I, I thought I was thinking about that the other day, trying to understand why it's changed so much. And I think it's because I've changed a lot, even in the last couple of years. Um, I am more. I am more disclosing of my my personal issues with with uh, uh, my struggles with my origin and and my upbringing and my inability to deal with any of this over the course of my adulthood. I'm I'm much more revealing of that today than I was, and and I'm much more willing to reveal that it was painful. Guys in America don't. Talk about personal pain. I mean, we bitch, you know, but but we don't, we don't really talk. We don't really talk about personal pain, right? So at least I didn't. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe young guys do. I don't know. Anyway, um, I never did. And so it was very difficult for me to, to to express uh, my experiences in terms of pain And therefore, that kind of rubbed off on how I wrote about the project. And so I wrote wrote about the project very, very objectively, Mm. telling myself that this is a good thing because I don't want to overlay my my personal feelings, you know, on the project. Right. But it but it really didn't. It really wasn't that, you know, Um, because because nothing about writing for the project really prevented me from being more honest about myself and what I was learning over the course of this project. And and I really needed to, to disclose more of that. And that's what I'm doing recently.
2: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I just watched Over the Moon uh, on Netflix. Didn't know it was a movie. I thought it was a TV show. And so uh, it was late at night. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm in for a later night than I anticipated. Um, and I... I, uh, wept openly, uh, in the first like four minutes. Um, I think just because of, of doing it See, this I show. never would have admitted and that. So. <laughs> I, uh, I have no problem making people feel uncomfortable. Uh, so, and if that comes at my own expense, then so be it. Um, <laughs> I, so I, you know, we're watching this story and, uh, obviously it's all Asian characters, uh, all mm. Chinese characters. And, um, and we, it's about like the, the Chinese moon festival, uh, which I just learned about my own Korean moon festival, uh, just like two weeks ago or however long ago that was. Um, and then the mom dies and I've been, uh, reading on Instagram and and having these conversations with that dark side of adoption, that sense of loss, uh, or the feeling that, you know, like that something was taken away from me. And so I'm already, uh, triggered by family things, as I found out when I watched Lilo and Stitch. <laughs> I was like, whoa, this is really deep for me. Um, but uh, but I, j- I just, and I wasn't prepared for that. Um, but I, I've found that as I have been on this journey of uh, interviewing other adoptees, of hanging out with Nathan and Patrick and Jerry and just learning more about um, my own roots as a Korean American adoptee, uh, that I find that I want representation for adoptees that like just asian american representation isn't good enough and uh because of other asian americans um and things like the podcast The asian americans or just like you know whatever other uh asians and media i've also learned that i shouldn't be content with saying like well asian americans are, are gaining more more Representation of media and that is good enough, but that also I should be fighting for my own voice and saying, like, no, I want adoptee voices uh, and I want adoptee stories to be heard. Um, So I'm so excited about Side by Side, but I'm curious um, what your thoughts are on, you know, kind of with an eye to the future, what's the next project? Um, And um, what, are, what are more spaces that we adoptees can add our voices to? Uh, podcast spaces um, being entered into by ours <laughs> and some others. But, um, nice. you know, are there other film projects? Are there other books? Or, yeah, what's, what, else, what else can we do?
3: Well, first of all, you know, you guys are just part of a, of a huge movement of adult adoptee voices. I mean, you must know that, right? So, yeah. I mean, there's a huge movement here, and it's and it started with academics, mm-hmm. um, but it is clearly extended to to you know all mediums and and of course digital production and all of those things has has helped that uh, immeasurably. But but it's there's a huge movement here, and and I think that that uh, the fact that out of a million intercountry adoptees worldwide, um, you know, you do the numbers on that. Ninety percent of us are adults, and in fact, a fair, substantial fraction of those are old adults right yeah so
2: glen we're not ageist on the show
3: they are <laughs> <laughs> they are they're 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 in their 30s they're in their 40s in other words they're in the peaks of their careers they they are getting the credibility and the platforms to 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 be those voices and and you guys are perfect examples of that and that's just happening all over the place and so you know, I, I, I couldn't be happier to be part of this movement. I couldn't be happier to have, to have been part of providing, you know, a body of stories that are going to be hard to replicate by, by anybody. I mean, it's a, it's a, it would be a tough thing to replicate. Um, and so I'm glad that we could contribute that. And, and I feel like that's what we've done. That's, that's what, that's what we brought to the party. Um, I think from here, uh, I I really want to support other adoptees in those platforms and in their efforts to tell their stories because more stories is better. You know, uh, I've been deeply inspired by an author that I'm sure you know, uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, mm-hmm. uh, who talks about the danger of a single story, and I think that is such a succinct thought that that a single story can lead to stereotypes and cliches, but many stories creates real understanding and real representation. And uh, and so, you know, even though many of the individual projects that are out there in the world today from adult adoptees are individual stories, it's the cumulative effect that excites me so much. It's the fact that there's so many stories out there right now, uh, in literature, in entertainment, in you know, on the on the video screen, it's it's just it just blows my mind.
0: I mean, to that effect, I agree. Your your project is going to be one of the ones that will go down in history of the Korean adoptees as as one of the greats. And so, we thank you for doing that, and really thank you for being on our
3: show to talk about it as well. It's really my pleasure to be here. This has been awesome. When does your audible project drop? November 5, one week from today. Of oh, course, so I don't know cool. when you're gonna when you're gonna distribute this podcast, but November 5. So for nice, the listeners like it comes great. out tomorrow. Wait. <laughs> is that right? It comes out Friday. No, it comes out yeah. Friday. In 2 yes. days.
1: Sorry. <laughs> we'll edit that. We'll just we'll just KJ we'll just edit that together. <laughs> Wait, no, it's November no, 5. No, no the, the Thursday. A Thursday. It's a
0: Thursday. So
1: it's
3: Thursday, so come out tomorrow. 5. Oh yeah, so it, does right, so come it comes out tomorrow. Out tomorrow. I was out tomorrow. The first. Time. Yeah. And you'll was be right able to find time. it you'll be able to find it on audible.com. Awesome. Yes, perfect. I oh, will we'll
0: definitely check that out.
3: And if that's when and if that's when the this podcast is going to break, then then I hope that your listeners might might join us for adoptee Hub's uh, fundraising event where 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 I'm going to be doing a little talking uh, as usual, but more importantly there's going to be several uh, side-by-side participants mm. who are going to join a panel and really talk about their stories and, and, and how, what it was like to participate in side-by-side. Awesome. Excellent. I'm in. Count me in.
0: Yeah. And so your, your material is on um, side-by-side, uh, you know, side side-by-side X side, side for yeah. those people who think I'm saying by side. Uh Side Actually, side, it,
3: right? it's it, no, it's spelled out side Y. No, oh, I thought there was an side. also
0: side X side. Okay. Well, well that's that that the, the logo, which is the, the right stylization.
3: <laughs> that's confusing. But, now uh, I just
0: confused everyone. I'm sorry. Let's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> scratch that out. We'll, we'll edit yeah. that out.
3: Just ignore Th- me. Thanks a lot, Nathan. It's, it's, <laughs> the, the, the
0: website is sidebysideproject.com. Okay. Sidebysideproject.com. And there are other places that uh, our viewers can find you on Instagram, on uh, YouTube.
3: Yeah, Instagram, Facebook, uh, you know, uh, Twitter, YouTube. I mean, look for Given Away on YouTube for the New York Times. Uh, oh, and 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 it's important to mention, the, too, that the Audible original is also going to be called Given Away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, given it's away. not going to be called Side by Side. It's going to be called Given Away. Right. Same take- as the New York Times opt dot. Given Away on Audible.com coming out tomorrow. Tomorrow,
1: Woo! November 5th.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I really uh, appreciate yeah, you really coming appreciate on. I really appreciate it. Seriously.
1: All right. Well, uh, I think if people stick around for a little bit longer, we'll be coming right back with some sort of food item. It's a mystery, as always. We'll be right back.
0: <laughs> Welcome back. Uh, we have a surprise mystery item today, number seven. We do not know what it is, but we are going to find out very soon. It
2: looks like a bag of chips.
0: As today. It sounds like a bag of chips.
2: Maybe it's like another shrimp. Ooh, maybe it's, uh, what is it, squid and peanut butter crackers? Oh, oh my no. God. Oh. <laughs> what? No, 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 no. Dude, please not. Right. Please now I'm going to no. jump right in. Oh, and it's are not you? more onion. Diving right in. It's,
0: oh. It's whale crackers.
1: Whale crackers. Whale.
0: I don't know what none it says on the None of them look day. like
1: whales. First, first thing I notice is none of these crackers are whale-shaped. Yeah, I was going to say, all
0: those other ones are like... Isn't that a harpoon? That's kind of like... Oh, no, there is a whale one. Look at the top. There's, there's a top... Oh, it looks like... oh, actually, oh, that's a dolphin. a dolphin. Dolphin. Never mind. Maybe there's, a... <laughs> Maybe there's a whale in here. I don't know. It smells cheddary okay From kind of orion World. yep wait
1: where it? does it say in english no on the back uh... it says OrionWorld.com. right here that's how i knew
2: oh nice <laughs> i was like i didn't know that you could read Hangu. you've been studying
1: <laughs> <laughs> nope. yeah no mine's got some uh, So these now. are
2: called
0: Wang Yep, seasoning. Which what does "wang"
2: that mean? makes it makes I don't know, like because obviously every culture has different onomatopoeia sounds. But "wang" is like a makes me think of like a like a "ching" kind of like oh, yes.
1: thing.
0: But and I have Sound no idea it. what gorebap is, but uh, that's what it is. Um, this is a very interesting looking chip too. I would say it. Uh, oh, here's I found the whale first one. Um, Cuts it it reminds fish me of it extract of those, powder. It reminds of me of uh, those little onion, uh, onion, young onions. Putting? Oh, like like
2: you put in a, a green bean casserole.
1: Ooh. Yeah, yeah. That's what okay. it looks like. When when you just visually look at it. it Interesting. Looks like... Okay. However, not I, what I, I, I expected it to smell like.
0: What's it smell like? I don't know. Seafood. it's a slight seafood smell to it. It's very
2: Wait, very Yeah,
1: I don't
0: actually know how to describe that.
1: It actually smelled different the second time I lifted it to my nose. I can't really make a. I like
0: them. I mean, they're not not—they're um, not overly powerful in any, in they're any form. They're savory. They, what are these,
1: what? This, this feels familiar to me. What am I eating? This does say it's very familiar.
0: It's a very close relationship to chicken of the sea, or the biscuit of the, what is it? <laughs> what? what There's chicken what? biscuit crackers that have like a um, chicken flavor. You know what I'm talking about? Chicken and biscuit crackers? Have you ever had no. chicken and biscuit crackers? No, am I saying that wrong? Look, I found a whale. Right. I and these are addicting. I, at first, I'm like, because it, it's nothing like a, like a serious strong flavor. It's just kind of mildly seafood. A little bit of salt, which I like. It's it's not too overly powerful salt. It's got good crunch. It's airy. They're like mm-hmm. they're like almost hollow on in the inside. They're really crispy, which is nice. Good yeah. crunch. I'm
1: Probably trying to place has. that taste. Mm-hmm. I know there's something else that I almost like a not a Triscuit, but Chicken um, and biscuit cracker. Oh, yeah, I, was I guess that's probably you.
0: I swear. That's what it is I, I, I mean, there like, is like a drum the other on kind here. of Triscuit. Oh. oh, yeah, there you go. There's meat flavor. Whoa, that's weird Have you guys ever had cuttlefish?
1: mm mm. You
0: have now. <laughs>
1: I know I saw that cuttlefish
2: what? extract powder. cuttlefish
0: extract powder. Oh This says stir-fried seasoning
1: Stir fry is fry seasoning? picture is. Welcome young
2: young yum,
1: mat. Mm. That makes a lot of sense now that you say it's stir-fried <laughs> but I'm not used to seeing stir fry with whole ingredients <laughs> not chopped up. Yeah, not,
2: I'm not used to seeing the finished product of the stir-fry <laughs> that is also clearly grilled and not stir-fried. All right. So, how many uh, stir-fried meats do you give this koreba?
0: Know, you. It's a, addic- it's addicting. I, I'm gonna have to give it. I'm gonna give it a solid four. Um, I could, I could eat these. It, it's crunchy, it's not too salty.
1: I like it. Mm. What about you, Patrick? Um, sorry, I'm eating them. <laughs> I'd also give it a four. Um, I like the taste. It's a solid taste. I like the packaging. I think get a lot of storytelling packages these days, and I really enjoy that. So you're going to give this a four? I don't know. I just, I mean, I keep eating them, so
2: it makes the rating go up. Also, okay, so Wang is king. It's not Anamanapia. Okay. And Kole is uh, whale, and Pap is rice. So this is literally king King whale, rice, rice, rice snack.
1: King King whale, rice snack. I like that. I but like that. It's That's a, a great wh- name for a snack.
0: But it's wheat flour. It's not a rice flour. Well, I don't know what to tell you, man. <laughs> this is what I read. Bop, pop? Is it P A B?
2: Yeah, that that B is like B A. It's romanized as B slash P. So uh, it kind of depends. Okay.
1: Blood pressure.
2: Yeah. I,
0: I still like them. Still get four. Um
2: Yeah, I'm gonna give this like a three and a half. All right. I really like the chip but i don't love the flavor pick it up so if i have not stir fry flavor i'd be like yeah this is good <laughs> but like the young young pudding i destroyed those finish them in the recording these mm-hmm. definitely not going to finish in the recording so, same but they're good the good munchies if i'm like yeah just want something crunchy to munch on same so and now yeah. i would so say i had... would go
1: for the onion flavored rings prior or before these yeah
2: same yeah sure, sure young pudding over
1: what are you, how what are you, how are you pronouncing that?
2: Young Padding.
1: Young Padding.
2: Yeah, so Young Pang is onion and then ring. Mm. Mm. So
1: Young Pang. Young yeah, Padding. Not bad.
2: Interesting.
0: Well, if you guys want to find episode. some of these <laughs> chips, go to your local uh, Korean store uh, or OrionWorld.com. And you can find maybe they have d- different flavors. And uh, if you need to watch us, we're on the John Chi Show dot com, John Chi Show. Oh yeah. On all locations, we'll have our website up very soon. No pressure. You keep <laughs> promoting that, and I'm like, bro, I still <laughs> got to turn that into a website. But there site. is a temporary website right now, so you can. I still mean, go yeah, there. you can you can go there for some stuff, but we're still yeah. working on on the features. The final the full website. Full website will be coming soon, so stay tuned on that. But uh, send us a send us a DM if you have any suggestions on what we should be eating too. And also Ooh, give us yes. your take on what
1: we've eaten already. Yeah. And we've tried these too. The King yeah. Whale the King Rice Cracker. I, rice cracker. <laughs> I remember <laughs> Slash wheat. I forgot.
2: All right. Well, you can find me at KJ Rilke on all places on the
1: internet that I want to be found. I'm at Noak Photo. And you can find me in St. Louis rolling on dubs. Just kidding. Uh, that was I don't a, know that reference. <laughs> that was the <a> St. <laughs> lunatics. Uh, reference you can find me at Patrick in the world on Instagram and that's about it. I Nowhere am where else I am in being more engaging on Facebook now. So say something and I might comment. Maybe mm, not. Happy, oh, maybe. happy
0: November adoption awareness month. Korean. adoption. Is it awareness, awareness
2: month? or it just like adoption month. There's like, Korean um, if you could just do all of your adoptions awareness. right now in November. I think it's awareness.
1: I think it's, I think, it's, oh, I think it's your
0: awareness. Aware- I am awareness. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you guys for watching.
1: We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.